Hi, everyone, and welcome to Geek Speak Louder Than Nerds, a weekly rewatch podcast for TV shows, movies, and who knows, perhaps the new elevated thriller, The Zaniac. My name is Mike Hilty. And I'm Nick Farrow. How are you doing today, Nick? I am doing swell. It has been a rainy weekend so far. Not loving that. I was able to mow half of my 12 and a half acre yard. <laughs> but otherwise... It was a nice little rainy day that we stayed inside and watched some movies. Casper the Friendly Ghost, The Nightmare Before Christmas. So it was a good little Saturday. There seems to be a consistent theme with oh, yeah. all of those. My movies. 40 to 50-ish days of Halloween. I've been watching as many Halloween movies as I can get my hands on. We do for family movie night. We have been doing Halloween-centric movies. And we watched Goosebumps last week. Oh. I was a little bit surprised. My daughter didn't think it was scary at all. Oh, no. My kids are so weird. No movies are scary to them anymore. I don't know. What the, I'm going to show them the thing next week. So we're going to. I look at the movies that used to scare my daughter when she was younger. So the movies slash moments that scared her the most part where Snow White goes through the woods, that part kind of freaked her out. And then she gets freaked out when there's giant creatures. So she freaked out during Turning Red when the oh. the mom turns into a giant red panda. I'm really hoping that doesn't mean that she just gets freaked out when her mom gets upset. Well, if Pixar has taught us anything, childhood trauma is actually the villain. She also That's got, interesting. She also got freaked out during Wreck-It Ralph 2 when all the Ralphs oh, converged. I didn't, that, I didn't that like looked, that either. That looked terrifying. It so was. I, I don't I know what they were thinking. That was just horrifying. I kind of can't blame her for that, but that's it. So last week we watched Goosebumps. Didn't scare her. She asked to watch Halloween Town, and that's not scary at no. all. So we're looking for a couple other ones to potentially Ghostbusters watch. Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters no 2. No one traumatized me as a child. Well, it's funny because I have a Ghostbusters shirt. I wore it and she's like, hey, who are you going to call? Like, how do you know this? Who told? When my kids quote anything, it's usually because they saw it on Teen Titans Go. Mm. Well, my daughter does not watch Teen Titans Go. She more than likely would get a reference like that from either YouTube or her friends at school. That's it. Yeah, gets them early. I showed my kids Ghostbusters too. And naturally, during the part where the severed heads are in the train tunnel underground. We warned them, like, you need to close your eyes at this part. This part's freaky. You're not going to like it. Naturally, they did not listen and they did not close their eyes. And then they looked at us like we were insane people. They were like, that wasn't scary at all. And I'm like, well, screw you, kid. Because <laughs> it scared the crap out of us. New movies nowadays, if it looks like it was a physical prop that somebody spray painted red, they don't you. buy it. They're like, no. I could see that it's clearly fake. Whereas if it's CGI, they're like, it's so real. You know nothing, children. We're struggling to figure out something that I know could scare her without causing irreversible damage. Seven now? Six. She's six. six. Okay. So I can't show her a movie like Seven because that's going to ruin her for <laughs> you know, a little while. Uh, wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My oldest is 11 now and the middle one is eight. And she wants to watch 
scarier stuff. She's like, I don't want to watch kid stuff anymore. I don't know. There's like no middle ground. It's kind of a huge leap. And to find stuff that isn't sexually explicit is hard in the horror genre. So I've got two. I've got Alien and I've got The Thing. And I'm like, I think these are both sufficiently scary enough that she won't ask me to watch anymore after this. Mm -hmm. She wants to watch it because her friends at school got to watch it. And I'm just like, oh, you'll never ask to watch a scary movie ever again. Uh, But what do you think, Mike? Should we get into the episode this week? Sure, let's do it. This week we'll be watching slash talking about season two, episode two of Loki Breaking Brad. You must be truly desperate to come to me for help. Nick, did you know that the Marvel logo shows for a grand total of 36 seconds? That's entirely way too many seconds, Mike. Way too many. I don't understand why it's so much, but whatever. Mobius and Loki come through a portal to London circa 1977, so both fellas are looking rather dapper in their suits, and Tom Hiddleston looks like he should be playing James Bond. Right? Like, he just just seems like... And this episode, actually, multiple times, I thought that. He's just got too much of a Weasley face, though. That's the thing. He looks good in a suit, but he's he's too much of a James Bond villain. Like, he's 005, who who dies and comes back at the end. Right, because Pierce Brosnan obviously exudes 007. Pierce Brosnan is a beautiful human being. And I would never throw a fruit at him. (laughs) Yes, run by fruitings. So they're looking for Sylvie and Loki is suspicious of being in this part of the timeline. There's no apocalypse or world ending event. It's just regular old England. Lobius or Moki Hmm. sounds better. I like the dynamic between these two a lot. They got a hit on a temp pad that belongs to Hunter X5. You dick. The signal has gone dark. Loki assumes that Sylvie found X5 and docks first, but they're heading towards a crowd waiting in line to see a movie called The Zaniac. I'm a maniac, maniac. So we shift to someone getting out of a fancy car and it's X5 or maybe a variant of himself. But we find out a little bit later, it is just X5. In the theater, there's lots of reporters and photographers. They're all taking pictures of X5. He appears to be a big deal in the timeline. Reporters ask him questions about his love life, his meteoric rise to fame, and finally, if there will be a Zaniac 2, which is asked by Mobius, not a reporter. So X5 is clearly flustered to see him, and he runs into Loki, wondering the same thing. Like, what are you doing here? X5 suggests that they go get a drink to hash things out, but it was all a ploy so that X5 could get a head start on running away. Yes, X5 books it out of the theater, and he runs right into an alley where he hears someone ask for his autograph. He turns around, but it's B-15 looking to kick his ass. Surprise, motherfucker! Mm-hmm. They fight for a bit, but ultimately she manages to wrestle his temp pad away from him. Upon losing the pad, X5 escapes with Mobius right behind him. 
Mobius chases him down and catches up to him in an alley, and he almost has him, but X5 breaks free and starts yelling at Mobius that they're going to ruin his life. He then takes a green bolt to the shoulder, and it knocks him down a flight of stairs, and in walks Loki like a boss, (laughs) and he tough talks him a little. You're so glad we're here. X5 takes off now with Loki in pursuit, and this is fun for me. In the previous season, Loki did not get to use his powers that much at all. Because in the TVA, he's powerless. He can't use them. But he uses his powers in the real world. And I really enjoyed this whole scene for his use of the powers. But I do have to knock the scene a little because he uses his powers and then proceeds to just run after X5 from here on out. It's like, when you use up all your juice? Like This is a pretty consistent Marvel problem. Yeah. Like, why, Wanda, would you use your powers and then all of a sudden just get into a fistfight with somebody? What oh, are we right? doing? Nothing like wizards punching each other to sell <laughs> the fact that they just weren't clever enough to come up with other things to do. <laughs> but Loki's not messing around. This chase scene chases on for some time and they turn into buildings, duck around corners, find random hallways. At one point, they even run through what I'm pretty sure was the set of Secret Invasion <laughs> before X5 runs straight into a dead end. Fool. Loki, right? Loki asks if Brad really thought that that would work and he'd be able to outrun him, to which Brad replies, yes. And then he uses a device to teleport himself back to the street. I love how this show keeps using Spider-Verse adjacent imagery. I caught it on the second time. Not only does he do like the whole little glitch thing, but he's got a time collar on his wrist like a watch. So he, he grabs his little like binny dial that they used in the first season to make Loki zip back and forth to where he previously was standing. And he's using it like an escape tool, which I thought was a pretty ingenious way of doing that makes me wonder if there's going to be more of a connection with Spider-Verse and the rest of the MCU. Probably not. That was the plan. In the newest one, they made that reference to Doctor Strange and Spider-Man on Earth 1999-99, which apparently I heard after the fact they did not get permission to do. They just (laughs) did it anyway, which I love that. So it's possible. I doubt it. I think it's probably for the best, though, to keep Sony separate. All the Sony stuff just separate from the MCU at this point. Well, particularly all of their villain spinoffs. Oh, yeah. Uh, just It drives yeah. me nuts to no end that people keep thinking that Morbius, which I said multiple times in last week's episode instead of Mobius, <laughs> Morbius <laughs> is an, a member of the MCU just because Venom showed up at the end of No Way Home. That just that bugged the crap out of me. X-5 appears in a different part of London, and after running for a second, he's stopped by a group of punk rockers and business-looking people. I can only describe as the worst crossover cover band of the Beatles and the Sex Pistols ever. (laughs) Uh, They surround him while they attempt to fight back. He swings a weapon, and someone from the group kind of disappears a little bit, and the group is magic conjured up by Loki. So my first question in all of this is, how did Loki find X-5 so fast, and more importantly, How dumb is X-5 for not going somewhere further away that Loki wouldn't be able to catch up to? Well, my guess is the way that the device he used works is that it only can take him back to where he previously was. So it brings him back out to the street that he was in. Now, Loki got there really quick, fine, Mm -hmm. and he started using his magic again, which makes me happy. So I'm not going to look that gift horse in the mouth. 
Okay. Fair enough. So Loki removes his X5's means of escape, and X5 taunts Loki to fight fair. Fight back! You coward, fight back! Then Loki sneaks up behind him, says that it's not going to be a fair fight, and he surrounds X5 with clones of himself. Two shadows with Loki's signature horns come out to catch X5 and hold him down so that Loki could potentially do something. X5 says he didn't do anything wrong. Mobius finally catches up to him. That's one of my other questions is where's Mobius this whole time? But he catches up to him and says, if you didn't do anything wrong, why'd you run? Which, yeah, that's always a big question. So then he asks Loki if what he's doing is a little over the top. And Loki replies, yeah, it was spot on. And finally, after all of this, we get the opening credits. Nick, what do you think of this opening scene? Well... First, I just want to zip back to the reference. Mobius saying, you know anything wrong? Why did you run? That that could be a direct callback to Civil War, because that's exactly what Black Panther asks Bucky. In that case, Bucky didn't do anything. So why did he run? I think that is far too smart of a callback. I don't know. I kind of feel it, like it is. I don't know. If this would have been a movie, I would have said yes. But with the TV shows in disarray right now, I don't Maybe. think. I don't but to think. answer your question, what did I think of this opening scene? This opening scene is the physical representation of what I imagine ADH the person would look like. It was all over the place. I was a bit lost, especially the first time I watched it, because they really zigged when they should have zagged. I was all in on the whole find X5 so that we can find Sylvie because he knows where Sylvie is and we can figure out Dox's plan. And then X5 gets out of a limo with long hair. He's Brad now. Why is Brad's hair long? How long has he been in this timeline? There's so many questions questions that it asked that the show just had no interest in telling us in this opening scene i love the use of loki and his shadow powers that was super fun give me more of that but they said they got a hit on the temp pad why did it give them that location like i had so many questions at the end of it because why did it give them that location if brad's been there for a while then shouldn't it have given him the location of when he first entered this part of the timeline not later on and I thought maybe will this plot point come back later and spoiler alert. No, no, it's not. But I suppose we do still have four more episodes. Maybe it turns out Sylvie was kind of behind it. But when Sylvie and Brad meet up, there's no indication that they are in cahoots. So I don't know. This opening scene is very all over the place. I really feel like I was missing an episode, if that's, that makes sense. That's my big takeaway from this opening scene is that I feel like I'm missing episode 1.5. Yeah, the there was a scene they cut at the end of last week or they forgot to put in the beginning of this week. Which would make total sense, unfortunately. But I ultimately just came away thinking that this was really very cinematic in a lot yeah. of ways. It was well shot, but I think there's just... A lot thrown at you in a very short amount of time that doesn't get really explained that well to some extent or another, even throughout the course of the episode. So it, I kind of struggled with There's it a, a moment too. later on that does it again when they're eating the pie. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into it then. But I have a feeling that this is just a story structure that this group of writers likes to use. And I think it may just be us as viewers not being used to this style. 
style because it feels like they don't care about these questions we're asking because they're going to just yada yada over it with a line of dialogue that we're supposed to just take as this is the answer. Don't worry about it. Let's move on. I feel like it leads to some messy plot down the road because of it, but we'll get to it more later. We will, because I've got some more thoughts on this. I've got thoughts. And we'll talk about this a little bit more towards the end, because I don't know if you saw in the news recently how Marvel is kind of revamping the way that they do yep. TV. And I think it's kind of moments like this that kind of shows, yeah, they kind of need to. Yeah, a little bit. I think that it's probably going to be for the better. So after our brief break of Loki flashing 30 times on the screen, we see X5, who I will henceforth be referring to as Brad, in a TVA prisoner jumpsuit being led through the TVA by D90 and B15. I also have to note that I liked B15 got a costume upgrade. She's no longer in the armor. She's got herself a smart little button-down shirt with a tie. She's apparently got herself a promotion, so good for B15. Company woman now. That's right. She's in charge, baby. So Loki taunts Brad about his jumpsuit and collar. It's, it's tighter than you think it's going to be, isn't it? And B-15 starts questioning Brad about his temp pad because it looks like he did something to it. He's being a real smart ass back to her. What an asshole! And there's clearly something different about his pad that they just can't figure out. So she wants to know if Brad found Sylvie, but he isn't talking. So she says some time in holding might make him talk. Brad is pissed about being treated like a criminal, but D90 hands him over and he's locked in a cell. B-15 then suggests to Mobius and Loki that they should have OB check out the temp pad to see what's wrong with it. And I got excited because that means more OB. Absolutely. So they go to OB's office slash lab where they find OB trying to retrofit a device to help the temporal loom. They hand him the temp pad and OB starts to examine it. He asks if the temp pad is a high priority than preventing the temporal meltdown to which Loki and Mobius reply. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I focus on the temporal meltdown. I agree. OB hands them a book and says everything they need to know about the temp pad is in the book, which we later found out is a TVA guidebook manual. Manuel, relay instruction. I thought that it was just a journal of his. And I was like, why are you handing him this journal? <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, yeah, it makes far more sense that it's, it's instruction manual, manual or a guidebook <laughs> of some type. I don't know. It seems like way too thin of a read to have all of the necessary information for the TVA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we'll see. We cut back to upstairs where B-15 is checking in with Casey slash Rutherford slash Caseyford, who's been assigned to find Renslayer. Uh, Caseyford is wondering if this is a secret mission that he should keep quiet. And B-15 lists off all the things that Renslayer is accused of doing, including killing Hunter. Hunter C20. Who? I don't remember who don't C20 remember is. Who I don't remember either. C20 at all. Sure. This was, sure if, she did. If this was in Loki season one, I don't remember it. Casey confirms that he can't find her and that he says that there's been no hits since Miss Minutes went down. All the analysts have been running traces manually, but all the new branches in the timelines, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. He did find that Renslayer received a message on her temp pad, which she erased, but he was able to track down who sent the message. So we cut to Loki and Mobius trying to fix the temp pad with the book that Obi gave them. 
This thing reads like stereo instructions. Uh, both are struggling to focus when Casey and B-15 share that Miss Minutes was the one who sent the message to Renslayer. Looks like they are working together. What? Mobius says that explains the radio silence from Miss Minutes. And Loki tells them about the tape recording that he heard in the past where he who remains and Renslayer are working together. Still no word on where they may be, but Casey is on it. Chase is on the case. So Loki and Mobius are struggling to put the tempad back together when Casey asks them if they read the TBA manual. I don't know. I didn't read them. You didn't read them? Casey volunteers to analyze. Casey is Rutherford in the scene. Pretty much. <laughs> Even kind of spurts up to Lynn in that part. Why didn't you just read the manual? Who the hell reads that entire thing every time it pops up? I do. Me too. Casey volunteers to analyze the modifications and confirms that it doesn't block any trackers. So everyone decides to make a run at Brad while giving Casey a chance to analyze this tempat. They head up to Brad's cell. Mobius, Loki, and B-15 are all there. But before they go in, Mobius explains that he wants to know three things. Where's Docs? Where's Sylvie? And what did he do with the tempad? Answer me these questions three. But Brad's no dummy. Mobius says, you know, make sure he knows our tactics. He's one of the TVA's best and he won't be an easy nut to crack. But Mobius is still kind of like, I think this is going to be a fun chess match. So he's ready for the back and forth that's going to come out of this. But he warns them not to let Brad get under their skin, especially Loki. He's an asshole. How are we supposed to know that Brad is one of the better Because hunters? they told us. They told us rather than showing us. Which, I mean, I'm going to give them a little bit of slack here because you cast a new character who wasn't in the first season. I agree. He's introduced as this dick right off the bat. First episode. He disappears. And then now he's a completely different character, essentially, who's a movie star and has lived what I can only assume is several months to years of a life as a movie star. But he was once their bet. It's all very rushed. Like I said, we missed an episode somewhere. So Mobius, Loki, and B-15 all walk into Brad's cell, and it's just a big orange room. The room is mostly empty with just a stool for Brad to sit on and some weird tubes in the corner. So Brad immediately starts going after Loki for not being an employee and just giving smart-ass answers to his questions. Brad is trying to pull rank on everybody. The really good moment, though, is when Brad confronts B-15 with everyone on the timeline having a life. So why can't he have a life? And B-15 looks Fair. a little confused about that, but also looks concerned because I think she knows deep down inside that he got her. But then he confronts Loki. And the big moment here is that when Loki says lives are at stake, Brad just takes him to task for that. I'm glad that you care that lives are at stake now, but... You have all these different moments where you didn't care when lives were at stake. He says the only reason Loki's here is because he's trying to make up for all the terrible stuff that he's done in his life. Uh, so Mobius starts to get concerned that Loki is going to lose it, but Loki wants to hear more about what Brad thinks. Brad believes that everything Loki and Sylvie have done has only made things worse, and Loki is in fact the problem. It's me. So at this point, Loki's pretty calm, but Brad invokes Frigga, Loki's adopted mom. Don't be talking about my mama! 
And that's when I thought he was going to lose it, but he did not. And Brad tells Loki to stop trying to be a hero because all he is is a villain. Loki starts to thank Brad for calling it like he sees it and acknowledges that he's done some bad things and that he is a loser. Loki says he feels that he's been holding back and just biding his time. Loki threatens Brad, but ultimately pulls back. Mobius, sensing uh, the tension in the room, tries to break things up and tells Brad a truly awful dad joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? Brad. Brad who? That show this. I liked it. Uh, well, of course you would. <laughs> I did appreciate it as well. He got um, him. <laughs> so Mobius is trying to get Brad back to the movie star life on the timeline, but Brad asked Mobius about his life, and that just sets Mobius off. He just keeps asking about what his life is like on the timeline and just snaps. I was a little shocked that Mobius was the one that snapped, but, you know, good for them for making sure that Loki wasn't the one that did that. I give this part a lot of credit because Brad, although he is a bit of an asshole, he just plays them all really good. This is among one of the better interrogation scenes, even if it is a little bit messy. And I agree with you that Brad was great. He was definitely given the most to do in this scene, but it felt like he only got that because the writers needed them to lose before they could win. I disagree. I don't think this was a very good interrogation scene, especially when you go to the next one later. This scene makes no sense for them to be kicked in the nuts so hard by Brad. They went in like complete amateurs. And I think that what would have made this a good interrogation scene is if it turns out they planned this the whole time because later when we get to it there's the second interrogation it's almost like if they had planned to lose that's what makes brad more susceptible to giving up the goods later on i don't know why he broke because otherwise why not just start with the torture because he didn't need to win in order for them to win i i don't know i thought it was really weird the way that this whole scene went it felt like it dragged on for way too long it did drag on for a while, and I think the big point of this scene is just to show that Brad's an asshole. That's it. Which we already had ample examples of. <laughs> I disagree on the ample examples. We just are told that he's an asshole. And just because we got the line or two from the first episode does not mean that we should come to the conclusion that, okay, he's an asshole. I don't know. I said it from the very start. I'm like, X-Fives is a dick. Let's call him Hunter Dick. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was pretty apparent last week. I kind of liked Brad by the end of this episode, though. That's he's a, growing that, on me. That's a step two too far well once they're all outside of the cell loki and mobius start heading down a corridor and loki is concerned that mobius has never been like this before he was very outside of his character so they go back and forth but <laughs> mobius claims that the outburst was merely tactical to throw brad off loki thinks brad got under mobius's skin but he denies it and then insinuates that it was loki's skin that brad actually got under they keep arguing as loki chases to keep up with mobius when mobius suddenly stops and cuts the conversation short because he's unsure of where he is he's clearly rattled and and blames Loki for leading him down here. He says, where are we? Which Loki, I, this is probably the only laugh moment I got of the episode. I thought it was funny. Loki's just like, you were in front, dude. Like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? So Loki suggests that let's decompress with some pie. Because when you're hungry, you're just not yourself. Snickers satisfies. 
mm, I really did like this moment and the subsequent next moment where they're talking. It's just a great role reversal because I feel like Loki's always the one that loses his shit and yeah. Mobius kind of has the one that talks him down. And it, just the scene that I'm about to talk about, it just shows, again, the chemistry between Owen Wilson and Tom Hiddleston, Whittleston. In the cafeteria, Mobius gets his key lime pie. Tell him we'll have punch and pat. We're not going to have punch and pie. My people will come if they think we have punch and pat. Well, we pull back to a, I think was a really cool shot of just all the pies around, just waiting to be had in the obviously very 60s, 70 container style. And the cafeteria is empty and just the room looks really cool. They yes. filmed this one during the pandemic. There's no extras. Yes. So Mobius admits that his outburst wasn't tactical and that he actually lost it. What? No. Loki recounts some of his best moments where he lost his cool, that he got so mad at his brother and father that he invaded New York, that he tried to use the Mind Stone on Tony Stark, and then he threw him out of the building, which that part made me laugh. because Yeah, that was that's, good. I like that. that. He then asked Mobius if he's ever wanted to find his place on the timeline, to which Mobius replies that he shouldn't be thinking about that right now. Loki keeps prying to get him to understand that it's okay to be curious, but Mobius has gone full Stockholm Syndrome on this, and he just says, I'm fine with my life right now, and that I've been kidnapped, but it's okay. This is the life that I have now. So Mobius brings up the risk of seeing something good on the timeline and having that trapped in his head, which I thought that was a good point, that you see something good on the timeline and you struggle with the what-ifs of that. I don't think that it's okay that he's just okay with this whole being kidnapped thing, but whatever. This may be just predicting or speculating here, but I kind of almost got the feeling that Mobius does know what his life is like and what he saw he wasn't happy about. So that's part of the problem. That's why it got under his skin because he knows what his life was and it either is something that he's upset that he lost or he's ashamed of and he doesn't want anyone to know about. But I don't know. I hope we learn more about Mobius in I, coming episodes. I, so Mobius shifts gears back to address Brad and he has a new theory. He thinks Brad found Sylvie, realized that he didn't want to sacrifice his life on the timeline. So he didn't turn her in. So Mobius and Loki try to find a way to get Brad to admit that that's what happened to him. Mobius then encourages Loki to figure something out because he's the god of mischief. I like this scene. I like this scene a lot. I originally said that I loved it, but you know, upon further speculation. I enjoyed it a lot. Again, I think it's just the conversation and the relationship between Mobius and Loki. If I could just get more of that, I'd be perfectly fine. Yeah, I also really enjoyed the scene. This was the scene that I was talking about, though, where when they say, like, well, okay, did Brad find Sylvie? They, I feel like their explanation of what they think happened is just going to end up being all we hear of it. That's the answer. What they came up with over Pi is what's happened, and that's that. Don't ask any more questions. But I have more questions. Like, why, if Brad found Sylvie, did he not turn her in? If they know what timeline she's on, why are they blowing up all the timelines? Why not especially go for that one? Especially when they're all saying, we're going after Sylvie. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of unanswered questions here. Mm -hmm. And I just get concerned that maybe we're not going to get answers to them. But It just raises too many questions. Fingers crossed. 
So after Mobius and Loki are eating their pie, we cut on down to the loom room where OB is carrying the device he was working on earlier that should hopefully help stabilize the new branches on the timeline. Once again, they show the loom and just A plus animation there. That CGI looks great. I love the way this loom looks. I don't know why I gave you a thumbs up because nobody can see it besides you. But yes, I (laughs) I audio podcast. Obi starts flipping some switches and hears the computer say loom status unstable. He plugs in his device to the computer and tries to input something, but he keeps getting an error noise. We zoom in on the screen and it says access denied, temporal aura invalid. Whatever that means. This concerns Obi and I think what that means is that a computer knows who's pushing the button, I guess. And like, it's part of the password. Mm-hmm. So, like in the TVA, your temporal aura is your password. It's something only you have and is unique to you. Uh, it's like a fingerprint. Way yeah. more cool. Oh, yeah. Futurist. Right. In the future, that looks like 1970s office. All the way in the year 2000. In the year 2000. Back in his cell... Brad is resting when Loki comes in and he's looking for round two. Round two, fight. Mobius is seen trying to bring something into the cell and Brad immediately looks a little concerned and he's also wondering where B-15 is. Brad thinks that torture is coming, but Mobius forgets a component of this random device that he brought in. As Mobius is leaving the cell, Loki locks the door behind him, much to Mobius's concern. We then see Loki doing some amazing work with this machine that clearly rattles Brad. I felt this scene was tense as well. This is the scene. This was the good scene. I enjoyed everything about this weird little box that he traps Brad inside of. Very weird and ominous, but yeah. I also like the machine. I got a chuckle out of them pushing the machine into the room Mm -hmm. and... Having to lift it over the stupid lip of the door. Yes. That was fun. Like, that long tube in the room that he connects it to. I'm like, what is this, like an elaborate blowjob machine? What is he doing here? (laughs) That's not going to get him to talk. Between the scene, the aesthetics, the music, and just the performances, it's just all around just great work. After Mobius leaves, Loki just becomes this just same menacing self he starts to use this device he entraps brad in a weird cube thing and just continues to make the cube smaller until it potentially crushes him and then we finally get the answer that brad did find sylvie and that she has a new life on a branch and this was kind of a moment where i felt like brad was setting a trap for them Hmm. Interesting. I didn't catch that, but that's probably because I was so busy wondering what would have happened if that box kept getting smaller. What does Brad Puree look like? Well, I'm glad also that they didn't try to make it like a comedic moment where they just like smushed up on Brad's face. And Oh, just... yeah, that's good, too. So well, it's I'm... not directed by Taika Waititi, so we're good. Loki, he... Hiddleston's so good at being a bad guy. I love it. This is why he gets his own show. Of all the people, this is well, this is who you give a show to for well, this kind of scene. And it just goes to show that if a showrunner slash director slash whatever kind of lets the actor 
continue to just do the same thing that they've been doing, in most cases, it could work out. And Loki's like a prime example of that. Yeah. Someone like Thor has been kind of jerked around a lot throughout the course of the MCU. And now Thor's just pretty much a joke. It's they've... too bad. Ah, what are you going to do? Hemsworth is good at being a goof. We head on back to the loom room. And B-15 is bringing Casey Ferd down to introduce him to Obi. And their their hope is that Casey Ferd can help. But Obi's not in the room. We can hear him, though. From downstairs, he's yelling, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Oh, hey, nice to meet you. We're all going to die. That's, of course, what you want to hear from I in charge of making sure you all don't die. Right. <laughs> Obi is scared because the blast doors won't open. Casey Ferd suggests something to do, but Obi says that unfortunately that won't work because he knows this. And when asked why he knows this, he confirms because I wrote the book and this stops Casey Ferd dead in his tracks. And he goes into full scale fangirl mode and he's like, you wrote the book? And he pulls out his copy of the TVA hand guide and he asks Obi if he can sign it for him, which I really liked this moment. I kind of hope we get Casey and Obi together moving forward that they seem like they're gonna be they seem like they would be a natural pair together kind of like (laughs) as obi's signing his book b15 brings them back to reality about the whole we're all gonna die fact that was currently being thrown around obi explains that with the blast doors locked they only a live scan of the designer's temporal aura will unlock the doors he who remains The only problem is he did. The only other option is for them to find Miss Minutes because only she can override the lock. Otherwise, they're stuck. At which point, Caseford asks, so we have to convince a rogue AI to come back to work. Seems awfully familiar. Hi, father. Prepare to die. (laughs) Yeah. A subject for this particular character to be asking about. Obi then says that he confirms that they have to do whatever they're going to do fast because the more the branches grow, the closer the loom comes to melting down. He can build a device to fix it, but if they can't find a way in, then it won't matter. Dun, dun, dun. Well, we pan up to a sign outside of Oklahoma in 1982 and Mobius, Loki, and Brad step outside of a portal. Brad is clearly uneasy about meeting up with somebody that killed 400 of his co-workers, Sylvie. But he reminds Mobius and Loki that they made a deal that they would bring Brad back to the timeline where he's a movie star. So Loki charges in to the McDonald's. Knowing that he has to confront Sylvie at some point. So he walks in and there she is. He finally found her. They share a tense moment and Sylvie says that she can talk in about five minutes when she gets her break. So we cut outside and Sylvie sits on the back of her truck and tells Loki to talk fast. She's not in a listening mood. Loki admits that he's probably the last person that Sylvie wants to see right now, to which she agrees. She wants to know why he's here, if not to make trouble. Loki explains that he was being pulled through time and bouncing between the past and the present and the future. And when he was in the future, he saw her at the TVA. He tells her that the TVA was in danger and 
And she was there and he has to know why. Sylvie explains that she hates the TVA and has absolutely no intention on going back there. She's done running because she's happy here. That's not good enough for Loki, though. He asked her to explain what he saw. If you don't want to go back to the TVA, then how is it I saw you there? And she doesn't know or care for that matter. As far as she's concerned, the future isn't written because she saw to that by killing he who remains. Loki asks her to enchant him and says he can prove it. Just go ahead and enchant me and he can show her what he saw, but she's not budging on her indifference. The conversation at this point breaks down into them bickering, but Loki ends it by asking if she likes the life that she created so much, then helping the TVA is the only way to keep it. The TVA will be the only defense if the war that he who remains predicted comes true. So back inside the McDonald's, Mobius is enjoying an apple pie, which, Nick, do you have any thoughts on McDonald's apple pies? They are both delicious and disgusting all in one tamaco flavored packaging. Tamaco? That's pretty clever, Dad. I mean, for a product that's evil and deadly. It tastes like grandma. I don't know. I can't explain it. (laughs) (laughs) Brad just looks mortified right now. He just looks super uneasy. So so Mobius recognizes the complication of Sylvie and Loki's relationship and how they need to give them some more time and a little bit of space. To change the subject, Mobius asks Brad to talk about his movie, The Zaniac. So Mobius thinks that it's scary and Brad replies, no, it's like an elevated thriller. It's cinema, not a movie. Brad looks clearly agitated and wants to desperately just get back to his part in the sacred timeline. And that's when Mobius realizes it's a trap. Back outside, Loki and Sylvie are still fighting. She believes that if Kang's variants start to show up, she'll just kill them and be done with it. But Mobius interrupts because he believes Brad knows something important. Brad continues to act all squirrely and insists that they need to get out of this branch right away because if not, they're all going to die. Finally, Sylvie has had enough of his BS and enchants him. And that's when Dox's plan comes to fruition for them. She plans to blow up everything but the sacred timeline. Uh, so that way it keeps the timeline pure and in check this it felt a little weird to give docs this big of a plan and this big of a moment when we don't know this person at all in episode two yeah, yeah exactly it really does feel like the increased budget of this show is a detriment to season one because it feels like they wanted to have all of this in the background in the first season but didn't but now it is here and they don't have time to set it all up because they only have six episodes so they're just like yeah no these people existed and clearly have opinions i don't know i feel like that part of the negative feelings i have towards the show but continue (laughs) back at the tba b15 and casey ferd see all the branches on the timeline having targets on them so sylvie mobius and loki send brad back to the tva and go straight to dox's staging ground where there are dozens of tva agents going in and out of portal doors with pruning bombs it's been a while it's been a while yeah so b15 informs them that docs has been pruning branches and is killing billions of people 
everyone springs into action to stop Docs from pruning all the other branches while or everyone at the TVA is trying to find a way to remotely disconnect all the bombs. Loki, Sylvie, and Mobius stop Docs and detain her, but by the time they get her and her loyalists back to the TVA, it's too late and billions of people have been killed and branch timelines are starting to dissolve on the screen. B-15 looks pretty devastated by this, which... This seems like a pretty drastic move to do. Just then, Casey Ferd informs that he got a hit on Renslayer's temp pad, and Sylvie confronts Loki and asks, this is the best that the TVA can do? Completely blames them for what happened. The TVA is the problem. It's broken. It's rotten. She decides to go back to her own timeline back in Oklahoma at the McDonald's. Back in Sylvie's timeline, she's on a truck and is holding her time control device that she took from He Who Remains and is pondering and looking intently into the sky. And that's the end of the episode. No post credit scene or anything like the that. The Just episode. That's the end. So, Nick, did you like this episode? I'm going to sound like a broken record from last week. Yes and no. Again, the aesthetics of this episode are amazing. I really enjoyed Loki getting to use his powers. Also really fun. I mean, we said it, it feels like we're missing an episode between one and two here. There was a moment at the end when B-15 is completely devastated by what's going on that it occurred to me, and I was talking to a buddy about this. What are the team dynamics here? Like, are they setting this up for later? Because it's not been addressed yet, but how are Loki and B-15 on the same side of this argument? Loki's whole thing is we cannot allow all of He Who Remains variants to to spawn on these branching timelines because they're going to send us into a multiversal war. We can't allow this. This cannot happen. So by the destruction of all these branches, Loki just got his goal. That was what he wanted. But he's now acting like this is bad. So I'm very confused as to what Loki actually wants. And I'm hoping it's addressed properly, but I have a feeling it's just one of those things where the writers weren't thinking about that particular thing in the moment because the drama of the scene makes more sense than the plot. So I don't know. But overall, I think the episode was, again, better the second time I watched it. It made more sense. I wasn't as bugged by the scattershotness of the events, especially in the beginning. I knew what to expect, so therefore it didn't weird me out. And I think that makes it for a better show. But at the same time, part of the problem of last week when I said that Secret Invasion got bump to my bottom ranking it's because i thought about it at the end of the day i'm never going to watch that entire six episode series ever again i will re-watch thor the dark world so that's why thor the dark world got one place higher on my li- like it's no longer 43 because at the end of the day i'm gonna want to go back and rewatch all of the infinity saga i will watch thor the dark world when i go back and rewatch the multiverse saga you sure as shit no i'm not visiting secret invasion and that's my concern with this show if they don't pull it off, I'm not going to come back and rewatch. Like, I might watch an episode, but I'm not going to rewatch the show if they can't keep it together. Again, I'm going to hold judgment till we see the whole thing. <laughs> yes. So I liked certain moments of it, but the sum of the moments does not equal good whole. Yeah. And this episode to me represents all the things that I just can't stand about Marvel TV is that they expect you to fill in your own blanks for a lot of this and just assume. And I think that's 
lazy storytelling. And given the recent news, we kind of alluded to this earlier about how Marvel is going to more traditional format of television and kind of steering away from miniseries. I think that all of these products have suffered because of Marvel's TV strategy has, which sucks because that just means that we're going to just get shit Marvel TV for a little while until they could start to write the ship a little bit. And we as the viewers ultimately kind of pay the price for that because we're left with subpar TV. But I enjoyed a bunch of moments in this, liked a lot of the performances, but overall, I'm just not seeing it just yet. And again, like you, I'm withholding judgment, but if by this time next week that I still don't see where we're ultimately going with this, I'm going to start to get a little concerned and borderline just a little pissed off. We'll see. We'll see. With withholding I, I want to give it the benefit of the doubt. I really do. And with all of these Marvel shows and movies, I always want to give it the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes it doesn't pan out though. See how it goes. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to our He Who Remains Award. I'll take you home and lock you in a nice little cage and never, never, ever let you ever... Do you imprison everything you like? Of course. Be so sexy, I'm gonna die. The Moopsie is Narja's favorite. Moopsie. In this segment, we pick a character from the episode who we would go past Eliath and to get to the Citadel of Time with. So, Nick, who is your He Who Remains Award for this week? Hmm. This one was tough because there weren't actually a ton of characters. And I alluded to it earlier, much to your horror, but I gotta give it to Brad. I think that Brad, as dickish as he is, he kind of won me over by the end. I didn't like him in the first interrogation scene, but once Loki cut him down to size, he was kind of squirrely. I thought he was a more fun character as the guy who doesn't want to be where he is. Like, let's get out of here. We need to go. They're going to prune this timeline, even though they didn't actually prune that timeline. I got to give it to Brad. I'm giving mine this week to Casey Ferg. And the reason why is the whole scene with him and OB, I'm hoping that we get more of that. And Casey Ferg does a lot of the the grunt work that is needed in order for us to keep going with this story. He's the one that found the hit on Renslayer's temp pad. So got to give him a little bit of credit for that too. It was really hard for me not to pick Loki in this instance. I almost picked Loki's shadow (laughs) creature. The shadow on the left that grabbed Brad. That one. Not the right one. Right one was phoning it in. Yeah. Uh, The one on the left, he was the best one in his row. On your left. (laughs) (laughs) See what I did there? But at the end of the day, Casey Ferg, I can't just give it to Loki and OB every week. (laughs) True. So that is our He Who Remains award for this week. Let's move on to our next segment, which is called The Sacred Timeline. You know, my pep have always said, if you want to do something right, you make a list. It's making a list. I'll put it on the list. It's quite an impressive list. Thank you. In this segment, Nick and I are going to do the impossible task of ranking our favorite MCU movies and TV shows, and then we will collectively rank them in one unified list, so no branches, no variants will be included. couple rules, we will include TV shows and specials in this list, but we will not be including shows from ABC, Netflix, or other miscellaneous sources like Hulu, 
or ABC Family or whatever it's called now. Freeform. That's right. Freeform. That's so, also mainly because I'm a brat and I refuse to count them as MCU because they're not. <laughs> it's got to be in the MCU proper, not MCU adjacent like the Runaways or Cloak and Dagger or whatever. So today we'll be ranking 34 through 26 and then we will do the rest of the, in the following episodes. And in the final episode, we will be figuring out how to join our list together. Nick, what is your number 34? My number 34 is going to be quick and easy because we talked a ton about it last week. And that's where I have what. What about you? Oh, that that's it. Okay. My number 34, kind of similar. We talked about this a bunch already, is Quantum Mania. Okay. There were some redeemable parts for me in Quantum Mania. I think part of it is because I'm a big Paul Rudd fan. So I'm going to like most everything that he is in. But at the same time, I have lots of questions about the choices that were made in Quantum Mania. Like, why did we feel the need to bring in Catherine Newton? I liked her. I know I have it really low on my list, and I know it's weird. Everybody else seems to not have liked her in this movie. I don't see why everyone's so down on Catherine Newton. I thought of all the things to be annoyed with by Quantumania, she was so far off the list that I didn't even consider thinking about her. The her character the, was pointless, but I thought she was fun. See, and that's, I guess, my problem is that if we were just going to have someone that was just fine, you could have just had the actress that played her beforehand just called it a day. I get why they switched her, because it's pretty obvious that Cassie is going to have a bigger role in the future, but yeah. we'll see. And I don't think Marvel understands what they're going to do with the Wasp. Like, I just don't oh think they gosh. know. It's so annoying. Like, they had it. She had the perfect introduction for in Ant-Man and Wasp. And they just kind of went in the opposite direction, which I said last week. Everything they did right in the previous two movies, they did the opposite of in this one. I am looking forward to seeing Catherine Newton in a Young Avengers type situation where she is clearly the quirky comic relief. What's your number 33? Number 33, and this one I feel bad about because I haven't rewatched it since it came out, and that is Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I might have alluded to when we talked about Secret Invasion that it's kind of a basic B show, and I feel like we judged it maybe a little harsh at the time, but it really suffers because this one is a two-hour movie stretched into six hours. Maybe a really good three-hour movie that if you edit it just right, but it's just overly long. It does a lot of good things. It just didn't excite me at the time. After the high of how creative WandaVision was, it just felt like back to normal. So I like it and I feel like I should rewatch it. And I have a feeling if I do, it will go up on my list. But for now, number 33. My number 33 is Iron Man 2. And Ooh. Iron Man 2... I think it had a bit of a tough task because you're coming off of the success of Iron Man 1 and they're still trying to figure out everything with this interconnected universe. And I think they tried to do a similar thing that the Batman series in the 90s did where they tried to just expand too much and the overall product suffers a little bit. This is very much growing pains. Show me the smile. 
in phase one of the MCU. And there were some things that worked. And I'm a little confused why some of these characters have not returned. Mainly Justin Hammer. Sam Rockwell is great in that Sam role. Sam Rockwell is... won an Oscar and now he's too big to do. <laughs> I don't know. So tell that to Olivia Coleman, who <laughs> wasted her time on Secret Invasion. Mickey Rourke's character was largely forgettable, but yeah. kind of like a wasted opportunity. And this was Don Cheadle's first appearance in the MCU. Uh, we will talk about Iron Man 2 later, but I agree with you. It is lower on my list, but I have a bit more of a soft spot for it. I hated it when it first came out. I really did. This is one of those movies that I have softened so much on over time that I think because I was so harsh on it when it first came out, I'm giving it more cred than maybe it deserves, but I absolutely did not like Sam Rockwell's character. I thought he was obnoxious, and now he's like one of my favorite characters in the movie. I didn't like a whole lot of how the plot was kind of a little bit of a mess, but now like I really connect with the moment at the end where they kind of equate Howard Stark to Walt Disney. There's something about that that I really dig, and just overall the movie is just kind of fun. So also there's a bit of revisionist history because the later movies really kind of inform on Iron Man 2 a bit more, so you get more out of Iron Man 2 when you're doing that rewatch to Endgame and I really enjoyed it a lot more. So it, it made it up on my list and we'll, I'll let you know where later. Now, are you ready for hot take number one? Yes. Hot take number one, number 32 for me is Captain America Civil War. I think this movie is just fine. I think that all of the criticism of the convoluted plot and the villain's plan are 100% valid and I have absolutely no defense for them. I think it's fine. I don't think that the airport scene was okay. It really bugged me that it felt like they didn't think about what the other people were doing while camera was on specific characters. Like when Cap and Spider-Man are fighting, they really aren't concerned with what's going on in the background. It's almost like everyone stopped fighting so that we can watch Captain Spider-Man fight. And then they cut over to... Black Panther and Hawkeye and everyone else stops. There's like no connective tissue between the scenes. And I think that Civil War would have been right for a scene like in the first Avengers where it is a sweeping shot of everyone fighting just to give an idea of the sense of the scale of this battle. Because at the end of the day, it's just like 12 guys in a parking lot. I feel like it should have been so much more. I, it's fine. Sorry. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Okay, it's definitely not number five on my list. It's definitely not in the top ten. It's But we're not I'm, talking about it today for you. We are not talking <laughs> about it today, but there are some things that I give credit for for Civil War. Although I do agree with you that the villain's motivations and just overall Zemo in general is a bit lacking. I do enjoy Daniel Brühl's performance, though. I like him, too. Yes. I, I think that also Civil War established a rather dangerous precedent that we do not need an Avengers movie in order for there to be a big crossover event. And I think because of that, that has in some ways spoiled individuals to assume that now any movie can be an Avengers movie. And I think that was a bad idea because yeah. now the expectations are almost unreasonably high. 
Well, it was almost like they were trying to combat the question of phase two. If the Avengers all know each other, how come no one came to help Iron Man when the president got kidnapped? If the Avengers all know each other, why did no one try to help Thor when a portal opened and a dark elf tried to destroy London? They tried to combat that with Civil War, and I think they went too far in the wrong direction. Yeah, and... I think also the thing that I kind of struggle with the most is that if introducing characters and backdoor piloting them in a big movie like this is actually really creative and okay, or if it's just lazy, because you introduce Black Panther and you introduce the MCU Spider-Man in this, and it's too much. It's just way too much. I actually disagree that it's too much. I agree with you that... I don't know what to think, but I think in this movie, it actually works. I think the introduction of both Black Panther and Spider-Man in this movie is a great introduction. This moment for Black Panther and Spider-Man, those are huge moments. And I think Spider-Man more so, his introduction is handled a little bit better, even though... Oh, I was just going to say the opposite. I think he's the weaker link, but okay. The fact that they could get to a moment where they say, with great power comes great responsibility without saying with great power comes great responsibility I think was an amazing move. Look, when you can do the things that I can but you don't and then the bad things happen they happen because of you. I, th- I, I like that, was that really also, cool. yeah. That's why I like it. I like both of their introductions because I think they were both handled quite well. They gave Black Panther more of a story. They gave enough of Spider-Man. You could argue that his role was a little undercooked, but like then again, I think that the moments he had, like Falcon asses that stuff coming out of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's talking during the fight and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it just, it perfectly showcased the Spider-Man that a lot of fans, myself included, had wanted to see that they didn't get from either iteration prior. So, like I said, I liked it. I suppose it could have been done better, though. And because if we introduce Spider-Man and Black Panther, it's just to the detriment of just including all these other people that just don't get a whole lot to do. Yeah, I mean, this is technically Vision's first movie to be a character because he just shows up at the end of the last one says some pontificating things and then goes into a battle now he has to have a character and they kind of set up wandavision with it and then wanda doesn't get a whole lot to do and literally is written into this script last minute Ant-Man's inclusion of this movie makes no freaking sense at all. And I love the fact that they address that in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Like, what the hell did you do? Like, why? Sorry about Germany. It just showed up. They said that it was a matter of national security. The cap needed help. Cap? That's what we call him. If you're a friend, I'm not saying I'm a friend. A little. I know him. He's not. Whatever. I think overall, again, I mentioned this on the Secret Invasion episode. You're going to use the title Civil War. I'm going to need you to deliver on that promise. Yeah, I think that's ultimately kind of the biggest criticism I have for it is that you squandered away perhaps one of Marvel's greatest storylines. And you squandered it away on a movie that tried to encapsulate the spirit of what the Civil War comic series tried to do. And they just bastardized it too much. And I just didn't appreciate that. I do want to say one positive thing, though. Like, I don't hate this movie, even though it sounds like I do. Newsflash, Nick hates this movie. Nick hates this movie. It's super low. Everybody else is stupid for liking it. No, I think that 
for all of my qualms, I actually think that this makes a good third Captain America movie. They never got lost. Yes, it was like an Avengers 2.5, but they never lost sight of the fact that it is a Captain America story. Captain America is the main character. Bucky from the previous movie is also a main character. And it ends with him and Bucky on a mission together to do a Captain America-y-like thing. Turns out Iron Man ends up being the antagonist for the final fight. Like, I think that's really clever, and I really love that part of it. He's my friend. So was I. That whole moment, I think they did earn it. The movie has great parts. It's just the sum of its parts, as we said earlier. My number 32 is Black Widow. And... Cool. I feel bad for shitting on Black Widow for a couple of reasons. Because do. number one, Black Widow came out a couple years too late. Oh, they okay. should have made a Black Widow movie a long time ago. Should have been the sequel um, to Civil War. Right. Number two, did we really need a Black Widow movie? No, not unless it was the sequel to Civil War. Yeah. Well, actually, yes, we did. Because I did like the introduction of the extra characters, which I feel badly for Scarlett Johansson because her solo movie was solely there to introduce other characters. Yes. And I guess the biggest thing that I struggled with is you made this movie after she died. Mm -hmm. Like, come on. A little Why? too late. You're right. I think the Black Widow family, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed David Harbour. And Florence Pugh is just fantastic in this role. I really like her as Jelena. The villain in this, the Taskmaster, whatever. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but... I, I got so annoyed with Taskmaster because everyone's like, oh, they made her a woman. No, that's not the reason. The reason is that they made her a mute. Yeah. I would have actually been really interesting to see a female Taskmaster if they made her like the comics, who is a cocky, arrogant asshole because he can do whatever they can do. She's no character. She has no chance of ever having a character because she's a mute. Glad to see that Marvel, like at least Disney's branch of Marvel, didn't learn anything from X-Men Origins Wolverine. I award you no points. And may God have mercy on your soul. Oh, Change, right? Changing things up with cocky people. What is your number 31? My number 31 is Black Widow. So we go. can just move on. What's your number 31? My number 31 is She-Hulk. Oh, yeah. oh boy. Okay, here's another one we're going to have to talk later. Because we're not going to be talking about She-Hulk for me for quite some time. So I'll just tip my cards a little bit. My list today is pretty much a lot of the Disney Plus stuff. Okay. And don't get me wrong, I do like She-Hulk, but when you compare it to a lot of the other stuff in the MCU, doesn't work as well for me. Hmm. I like the episodic structure of it. I really like Tatiana Maslany. I don't think the script did her any favors, and I really don't think that the CGI did her any favors as well. And the more I think about it, the more I'm very mixed on the ending. I feel like there could have been better ways to do that, even though I did enjoy it, because Marvel does need to be taken to task for the way that they end all of their things. And this is the thing where... There are four legacy characters of the MCU that are included in this, and I only thought that one of them was okay, even though it also doesn't make a lick of sense of why Daredevil is in this at all. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> like you practice law in New York, buddy. You can't just practice law in California and just hope that it's okay. I agree with you, but we needed that, all of us. That indescribable feeling we get when Matt Murdock shows up and it's Charlie freaking Cox. Why didn't you tell me that before we fought? Uh, why didn't you ask me before immediately trying to whoop my ass? I- I'm sorry that I assumed the guy dressed as the devil was the bad one. <laughs> That's a fair point. Now, I guess, granted, we already got that in Spider-Man. Charlie Cox's inclusion. I'm Daredevil. Well, just very daring to use ketchup and mustard as your color scheme. Just goes to show that a lot of the Netflix stuff can be incorporated in this in an organic way. Oh, but they're not going to. (laughs) They're definitely not going to include everybody. If we we don't know what they're going to do now, they're completely scrapping what they had and rewriting it all. Which I am perfectly fine for. I understand people's dislike. It is a comedy, so therefore comedy being as subjective as it is, it will work for some, it will not work for others. You said that the comparing She-Hulk to the other entries in the MCU, that's exactly why it's so high on my list. Because when I compare it to the other entries in the MCU, it's so different that I can't help but love it. And it tickled me in a way with the comedy that if you make me laugh and you don't make me cringe, you will always have extra points in my book. I'll gush more on She-Hulk in a few weeks. And also, is it possible that that ending has now been kind of sullied by the fact that they take Marvel to task and then Marvel proceeds to do exactly what they took them to task for in the next like three to four entries? Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, do you, you guys not? talk to each other at all nothing from this (laughs) they all thought that that fake ending was the actual ending of she-hulk like ah we don't need to change anything number are we on (laughs) my number 30 is the first ant-man everything about today is going to be it's fine that's going to be the theme i like ant-man the first one is fine i don't understand why people like Oh, it was the heist movie. I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't a good heist movie. So I enjoy it. I feel like its main problem, other than the Edgar Wright of it all, I think that the problem with Ant-Man is they were afraid to be outlandish. They played it safe. This was a safe movie. And that's kind of why I like Ant-Man and the Wasp so much because it realized it didn't have to play it safe. It got to lean into the goofy. He's a little guy who can somehow also hit as hard as a regular guy, but also is stronger. The way it's described makes no sense. That tank should have weighed a million pounds based on the rules that he set forth, but he keeps it on a keychain. But it's like they tried to be too serious with it because they thought people would scoff. No one's going to like this Ant-Man idea because when they were making it, Guardians of the Galaxy hadn't come out yet. And they hadn't yet realized that we could put a raccoon in a talking tree into a movie and people will love it and pay us all the money. So Ant-Man had to play it safe. And I think ultimately that is why Edgar Wright left because he didn't want to play it safe at the end of the day i like ant-man just not that much paul rudd's amazing national treasure sexiest man alive my number 30 is the guardians of the galaxy christmas special 
Okay. So I struggled a lot with where to put these Marvel specials on this list. And I think the thing that I appreciate about the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special is that taps into a good message that is kind of lacking sometimes in a lot of these Marvel movies and kind of hones in on the relationships that the Guardians have. I think the thing that I struggled with the most is that it didn't have like the full roster of a lot of the characters and the guardians of the galaxy has had a drax problem since guardians of the galaxy volume two they struggled a lot with what to do with drax because he was such a revelation in the first one and then in the second even the third i actually have a a theory on that okay what's your theory so guardians of the galaxy 2 used to be at the bottom of my list one of the ones i hated the most and drax was the main reason but then, right before Guardians 3 came out, I rewatched them all. And I realized that Drax progressed drastically, yes. He was definitely a lot more unbearable in the second one compared to the first one. But if you rewatch them now, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 Drax is definitely toned down from Infinity War, Endgame, Christmas Special, and even Guardians 3 Drax. And it's funny that I thought he was so obnoxious and ridiculous when it only got worse. And as a result of it getting worse, I kind of like it better (laughs) because Mm. now I go back to Guardians 2 and I'm like, oh, Jax is so much more serious in this than he had been. Mm -hmm. Like It was at the time we only had the two movies to compare. Now we have five. So he doesn't seem as outlandish anymore by comparisons. I don't know. Revisionist history again, but I think that we underestimated Drax and how annoying he really could be. What's your number 29? 29 is Avengers Age of Ultron. This one used to be hovering more around the middle, but there's just they've come out with a lot recently that I just like a little bit more than it. I think it's a perfectly fine sequel that is depending on what day of the week it is i either think is way too long or exactly the right amount of time like so weird i bounce back and forth every other time i watch it i'm like this movie drags on and then the next time i'm like this movie's freaking amazing so i can't ever decide on what to do i love james spader's casting as ultron the minute they announced that i was just over the moon like that's perfect Like, you can't get any better than that. And then they wasted him. But I'm convinced that Ultron's not dead and that he can make a return in an Avengers movie someday in the future. I like Ultron. We'll be talking about Age of Ultron not too long after this. I think Age of Ultron just, again, signals a lot of things that are just big issues with Phase 2, specifically, of Marvel, where just trying to expand too much. I really like the inclusion of Wanda and Pietro. What a waste for Pietro, though. Blame it on Fox. They made an agreement. He promised to kill one of them. My number 29 is Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And the reason why it's above some of these other Marvel TV shows. Number one, I will fully admit I got emotional when I saw Sam in the Captain America costume. I'm sorry, wait. Who are you? Captain America. I thought Captain America was on the moon. That's so cool to see him in that. And even the subsequent speech, as kind of corny as it was, I did like what he said. I know that some of you are going to hate me just because of the color of my skin. I'm a big Anthony Mackie fan, so just any chance that we can get to kind of like prop him up a little bit more as a performer, I'll take that. 
And also the dynamic between Sam and Bucky, I really like. It's never going to replace Steve and Bucky, but I just like their dynamic. It's always super tense. The moment where you get to see Bucky when they're reading the code that like yeah. sets him and becomes the Winter Soldier and he doesn't become the Winter Soldier was super effective. I did yeah. like that a lot. What I struggle with with Falcon and the Winter Soldier is the setup of the Thunderbolts and the Captain America replacement. I could yeah. not stand the guy. I agree with you on that. I was disappointed because I really liked that whole Bucky and his old war buddy. The old Asian dude who lived next door. Was he a war buddy or... He was old, so they bonded because they grew up in the same time. He was in the first episode and the last episode, and it really felt in that first episode like it was going to be more of a story there, mm -hmm. and there wasn't. But otherwise, I agree. I think Bucky and Sam have a really great, almost Riggs and Murtaugh-like relationship, and they did that really well in the show. And that ending, getting to see Sam put on the uniform and be Captain America, you can't help but get choked up for him because you did it. You got there. I love getting to see people overcome adversity and do the thing that they're most suited for. Like, that's one of my favorite tropes in movies when Hero finally can do the thing and everyone can be proud of him. Yeah. So, like, I like that. I, I think that was one of its shining moments. I may not like the way that they did it, but give me more Julia Louis-Dreyfus and stop putting her in stupid moments in movies. Let's get her into something that works. One other thing that I will say as well is that the main villain group, I just was not a huge fan of. Didn't make but any sense. One thing that I will say is that I did appreciate the acknowledgement of not everything is all hunky-dory with bringing people back from the blip. I did appreciate them trying to swing for that, but it didn't work. Uh, well, it well was also the first casualty of the pandemic. They said straight out there was supposed to be a pandemic-related story arc for the bad guys. They had to completely rewrite it. What's your number 28? Ready for hot take number two? This might even be the biggest hot take of the night. Uh, this is where I have Spider-Man No Way Home. Oh, okay. <laughs> Listen, I get it. If you grew up loving Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and maybe pretending now to, that you grew up loving The Amazing Spider-Man, because I don't know where any of you people <laughs> were back then, but I certainly know that you didn't exist. So I'm sure you have plenty of reason to love what they did in Spider-Man No Way Home. I, on the other hand, did not care for those movies. I thought they were fine. I always was bugged by the fact that they focused too much on the, the romance part between Peter and Mary Jane. And it was more teen soap opera, campy humor that I just, I didn't get them. So when I heard that they'd be bringing them back for the third Spider-Man movie and, oh, guess what? This new Spider-Man, he doesn't have a Doc Ock. He doesn't have his own Green Goblin. He doesn't have his own Sandman or Electro. He's only going to have the old ones. I was so infuriated. That is by far the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I was looking forward to this universe's Dr. Octopus. I was looking forward to this universe's Green Goblin. We were supposed to be building to that. And now we don't get that. We're never going to get that. They said he doesn't even exist. And that annoyed the crap out of me so much. I... 100% agree that the final battle, like from the moment Andrew Garfield appears on screen to the end, is a good time. It's a fun movie. 
Andrew Garfield for me is the MVP of the whole freaking movie. He took everything that he wanted to do with this character and got to do it. And I love that they let him. And I will 100% be all for a, an amazing Spider-Man 3 if they ever do it. That being said, I just did not care for this movie. The first half of it is boring as hell. And the second half of it is fun as hell. And all the Doctor Strange stuff makes no goddamn sense. So overall, I just cannot come away from this movie with positive attitude. I think that Tom Holland got done dirty, even though they did give him an amazing emotional scene. And I do like how they turned the Aunt May into his Uncle Ben moment. Although I kind of am annoyed that they kind of insinuated he already had his Uncle Ben moment. And so therefore now he's having another Uncle Ben moment. But still, I think that it's cool that they made this trilogy his Uncle Ben moment in learning about great power and great responsibility so that if we ever get more Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland in the MCU, because fucking Sony... For gosh sake, watch your language. That's not going away anytime soon. Sorry for my language. Has to screw around with the terms of their agreement. Sony strong-armed them into changing the agreement because they took Spider-Man back when the deal was over. And they said, well, if you want him back, you have to put all of our characters into your movies. And I felt that MCU got a raw deal because now Sony's just putting out crap. Except for Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse is great. You keep doing what you're doing, buddy. Rant over. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I don't trust Sony. I've been waiting. Two years to get that off my chest on a public forum. A public forum for like 15 people. My number 28 is Age of Ultron, and you kind of hit on a lot of this stuff. There are pockets of this movie that were really interesting, but again, the some of the parts just didn't add up. I do borderline think that this is a little overhated, but we're grasping straws here. It's not like any of these movies actively all terrible. It's like, no, they're, they're just fine. So. Yeah, we already talked about the ones that are actively terrible. What's your number 27? This is where I have Iron Man 2. So not far for off from where you had it. A little higher. You're 27? This is where I have Spider-Man Far From Home. Ooh. I liked a lot of what Spider-Man Far From Home tried to do. That scene where Mysterio kind of puts him through the ringer, that illusion scene, is really cool. Yeah. And I do like how they tried to change it up with like kind of a modern twist with, hey, we're using drones. However, in a world where sorcerers and magic are still a thing and Mysterio is supposed to be a magician-y type of person, like, why couldn't you have just done something with that? One thing that oh, I Oh, no. They nailed Mysterio, if anything. Mm. If they did one thing right in that movie, I think that they, they got Mysterio spot on. The part of Mysterio that I struggled with a lot is that, one, I do think that the MCU is just very over-reliant on technology for just about everything. I struggle with that a lot. The Iron Man effect. And then also, the connection directly to Iron Man, I did not like. That is probably my uh, biggest negative of the movie, I, too. I get it. Like, it makes sense. But once again, it's not a villain that Spider-Man has come across. It's somebody who's pissed off at Tony Stark. And Spider-Man just gets in the way. Which is okay for this first round of Spider-Man movies. He hasn't had his Uncle Ben moment yet, allegedly. So his Aunt May moment. I understand. I have it higher. Not too much higher, but I have it higher just because I was able to look past like pretty much all that. Plus Mysterio, one of my favorite villains from the cartoon show. The fact that they did it and it worked and he wasn't stupid looking. <laughs> like Wait. he 100% could have been. I really just enjoyed all that. Like I appreciated 
the costume. They kept the costume pretty much very similar. One thing that I do really like about this is I do like how Peter is kind of exploring his grief at losing Tony. I really liked that. And quite frankly, I didn't think there was enough of it. I agree. Could have gone deeper with that. They had to make sure he had zany adventures in Europe. I guess that's one thing that I also kind of struggled with as well. Like, why did this need to be in Europe? I think they're going for a, we don't want Spider-Man to be in New York City proper just yet. I did like in this one that they gave Zendaya more to do. Agreed. She really fits in with this cast. They did kind of change her character a bit because she was way more moody in the first one and very antisocial. And now all of a sudden she's not. But I think it works because she's so good. It just it works for her. Yes, they definitely she's all that at her. (laughs) They took off her glasses and they straightened her hair. Then all of a sudden, Peter Parker is in love. Uh, what's your number 26? This will be the last my, one. For the my number 26 is Moon Knight. I really enjoyed Moon Knight as a show. I think the mystery element to it was great. The whole duality of the character was also great. I especially like the ending with the reveal of the third personality. I'm very excited to see where the show goes. The giant avatar fight was weird. And I feel like they missed an opportunity with when he died and was in the mental institute. Yeah. They missed the opportunity of making that be the whole series back and forth. Mm -hmm. Like instead of it being a reveal in episode, what, four, it should have been something that we with all throughout so that way by the time we got to the reveal of what it was it was a bigger deal but they zipped through it so quickly it just didn't resonate with me like it had real lost vibes Mm -hmm. And I was really excited because, oh man, to chase the high of what it felt like to watch Lost for the first time, it's just not many shows can do that. And and Moon Knight almost did. And so I got to give it credit there, but I wish they lived in that world a little bit longer because I really need my Lost nostalgia. I also really like what they did with Mom and the story there and the trauma and the different suits. Like, there's a ton that I love about it. It's just, I think six episodes just was maybe too much. I don't know. It's kind of like right in the middle of my list. It's pretty close. close to the middle, yeah. Yeah, it's not Um, bad. I I would love to see more. This is where I kind of struggled with it a little bit because I honestly thought that we were going to have something overlap tonight and we're not going to. So yeah, I just was thinking the exact um, same thing. I'll tip my cards a little bit. Moon Knight is my first one that I'll talk about next week, if I'm being perfectly honest. But so close. The struggle that I had with Moon Knight is that I'm not sure when we're going to see Moon Knight again. And right? that is the problem that I have with a lot of what's going on with Marvel now. Like, when are we going to see Shang-Chi again? We've seen Wong more than enough times throughout the course of this most recent phase in the MCU, yet we haven't heard from some of these other people. I really like Ethan Hawke's villain in this. It was interesting. And this skews more into the supernatural that i really like oscar isaac who who's fantastic in this you're playing three different parts in this and you can nail it good for you oscar isaac and the dynamic that he had with with his avatar was great was great i kind of have a feeling that their dynamic together be similar to the dynamic that dr strange would have with his cloak of levitation if it talked yeah that's a good one agreed 
my number 26 is Werewolf by Night. Oh. Again, I don't want it to seem like I didn't like Werewolf by Night. I, I think the only reason why is it's it because small, it's not in color? Is that why you don't like <laughs> so mad at you right now? I think Werewolf by Night does a lot of really things amazingly. Like, I think that it introduces the supernatural element in this and like the monster realm of this really cool. I love the black and white of this. I really don't understand why Marvel wants to take away one of the more creative choices and adding color to it because the black and white effect, especially when he turns into a werewolf is one of the best parts of it. And the color and adding color is just going to ruin it. Mm -hmm. And there might uh, be some scenes that look cool with the color. Like I'd love to see Ted in color. Sure. Like other than that, no, <laughs> I don't. it takes away from the whole aesthetic of the entire thing. So the I want to see Werewolf by Night and Moon Knight together. Yes. Like I feel like that's where they're headed, but like I, when you see it, who's who's to say? Yeah. So Werewolf by Night, Moon Knight, Blade, and the uh, the Black Knight. Like I could see them all cruising around in a like con con Constantine like type of thing where they're battling monsters and all of that. Introduce Ghost Rider, and then you've got yourself a Midnight Suns team. Mad props to Michael Cicchino for this, because it shows that, hey, your boy can direct, too. Hey, he can Ken. do music. He can do direction. Give him more opportunities to direct, please. So obnoxious when people are so talented. <laughs> I know, right? The two, the two things that I struggled with the most with this is, one, it throws a lot at you for an hour-long special. It's a lot, which is why I think the Guardians of the Galaxy special is kind of tailor-made a little bit for for these hour-long specials introducing all of these new elements might not be it's mm -hmm. it's just throws a lot at you and then the other thing when am i going to see any of these characters ever god i hope so soon i hope this so is, this is why i keep i keep saying it and i'm gonna keep saying it until they get their heads out of their asses i don't need long series that take up time of everyone that Make it so you can't do anything else. Give me more of these specials. Make them short. Make them one hour. Give us a story, a one shot. At this point, we need that because we're not going to see these guys again for another six years. God forbid we we make a direct sequel that takes place like a year later. It's going to be six years later in their story as well. And I don't know why they keep doing that. They need to get it out quicker. That is our sacred timeline for this week. What do we have coming up next week? Next week, we have season two of Loki episode three, currently untitled, but good news, sports fans. If you tune in to our next Lower Decks episode, I promise you, you will get to hear the <laughs> title and the episode description because we will have seen the episode by then <laughs> but that won't be our next episode in your podcast feed the next episode will be on tuesday as we bring you star trek lower deck season four episode eight i promise this time it really is caves apologies last week for the confusion <laughs> i don't know how calendars work <laughs> until next time please like subscribe avoid being crushed in a shrinking cube Share the podcast and rate us five stars on your listening app of choice. Also, you can find us on social media. I'm on Blue Sky, Twitter, and Letterboxd. 
at Jagged2319. Also, quick aside, this is our 10th episode. Isn't that... We did it. We made it to double digits. Hooray. (laughs) With only minor controversy. fourth grader. (laughs) There we go. So I'm on Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, and Serialized, which is Letterboxd for TV at MLHilty2452. You can also contact the show at GeekSpeakLouder at gmail.com or on Blue Sky, where you could just search for GeekSpeakLouder, the nerds. Until next time, I'm Mike Hilty. I'm Nick Farrow. Thanks for tuning in to Geeks Speak Louder Than Nerds. Bye, everybody. Catchphrase.